I'm so glad to be with you here today. It is an honor that you would invite me into your home, into your sacred space, that together we might be able to discern God's word, that we would listen to God's spirit, that we would hear from our Father a good word for us today. If you're just joining us, we have been in a series. In fact, this is the last sermon in a six-week series where we've been looking at the book of Hebrews because we're looking for a fresh start. We want to have a fresh perspective on who Jesus is, what he's done, what he's accomplished, and what that means for our lives. And so if you haven't participated with us over the last five weeks, I'd encourage you to go to our website. You can see all the previous sermons. You can go to our YouTube channel. You can see all the previous, you could binge watch the sermon series if you wanted to. It'd give you a really good idea as to what's happening in the book of Hebrews, specifically chapter one, verses one through four. Today, we're going to be looking at Jesus as our King. What Christians often refer to Jesus as our Lord. So if you would, open up your Bibles. We're going to be going to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. I'm going to read the entirety of Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. And at the end of it, I'm going to say, this is the reading of God's word. And if you believe it to be true, respond by saying, thanks be to God. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. He is the reflection of God's glory, the exact imprint of God's very being. And he sustains all things by his powerful word. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. You know, I grew up in the church. And one of the things that when you grow up in the church, or if you've been around Christians, and you hear things repeated over and over again, they kind of lose their meaning. They lose their significance. And, and last week, Pastor Drew helped us and, and dove into this idea of Jesus being our savior, Jesus being our mediator. And today we're exploring Jesus being our Lord. And if you've been around Christians long enough, you've heard Jesus referred to as Lord and Savior, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's actually often said as one word or one phrase. It's said in one breath, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And yet Lord and Savior are two distinct words. They have very distinct meanings. It's kind of like how we refer to Pastor Drew as Reverend Dr. Drew Sams or Pastor Care Crawford as Reverend Dr. Care Crawford. The reverend and the doctor are unique. They're distinct. They have specific meanings. And so it is true with Jesus. He is both Savior and Lord. And so we're exploring what does that mean? What are the implications of Jesus being Savior in our lives? As we go to Hebrews chapter 1, you'll see that in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the second part of verse 3, 3b, it says that when he had made purification for sins, see, that's Jesus is our Savior. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is our Lord. What does it mean 
for Jesus to sit down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I got to be honest with you, before preparing for this sermon, I don't know the last time I really reflected on Jesus sitting down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I didn't spend a whole lot of time thinking about it. In fact, it's one of those things where you kind of read through scripture and you have like a faint idea of what it might mean. You're like, ah, I'm pretty sure I'll kind of catch the idea as I read along and you just kind of blow past it. But today we can't blow past this. We have to pay attention to it. There is significance in this phrase, and let's explore it together. Jesus is, yes, he's Savior, but he's also Lord. Jesus is our priest, but he's also our king. What does it mean for Jesus to be our priest king? Well, Jesus is one of only a handful of priest kings that we learn about in Scripture. The first priest king we learn of is a gentleman named Melchizedek. Melchizedek in Genesis, I think, chapter 14, we're introduced to this Melchizedek. His, his name, Milky, actually means king. <laughs> Sorry, Milky means king. And uh, Zedek means justice. So his name actually means king of justice. And the second priest king we come across is Adonai Zedek. You hear the similar phrasing there, Mekilzedek, Adonai Zedek, Adonai meaning Lord. Adonai is Lord, Adonai Zedek is Lord of justice. We have this king of justice. We have this Lord of justice. The first two priest kings we come across are defined by those two words. And then our third priest king is King David. King David, if you know anything about King David, you know that he is kind of messed up. He's a broken man. He's a sinful man. He is not always just. He is not always righteous. And it was David who was longing for this future priest king, this perfect priest king, because he was aware of his own brokenness. He's the one who penned Psalms 139. Search me, O Lord, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me, because likely there is and lead me in the way everlasting. That is the heart of King David, our third priest king. And it was King David who also wrote, longing for this future priest king, in Psalms 110, where he says, my Lord said, to, the, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Hear that phrasing? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And we know who this fourth priest king is. We know who fulfills that vision. His name is Jesus. Jesus is our perfect priest king. What does it mean? What does it mean for Jesus to be our king? What does it mean for Jesus to sit down at the right hand of the majesty on high? We are not the first ones to ask this question. This is not a new question for the 21st century. In fact, we, we say this to be true. We, we've professed this to be true. We say this in our Apostles' Creed. One of the very first, I believe, statements of the early church, the Apostles' Creed says this very phrasing. It says that uh, it's not very long. I mean, they, they could have included anything, and they included this statement. It says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And it goes on to say, he ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. You hear it there? It sounds pretty good, doesn't it? 
I mean, of all the things that they could have written down, it wasn't a very long creed. They didn't have a whole lot of space and they chose to use that phrase. And he sitteth down at the right hand of, the, of God Almighty. I, I don't know why they chose sitteth. Maybe they're using the New King James Version, but they chose that word that he sits at the right hand of God Almighty. What does that even mean? Why would they include this? Does it have any significance for us today? These questions are not new questions. In fact, in the 16th century, the church is around 1560s. The church was asking this very same question. They had this discipleship curriculum. It's kind of like our rooted program, but like on steroids, okay? They are training up people to understand what it is that they profess to believe. And one of those questions, it's it's set up in a question and answer kind of format. In the Heidelberg Catechism, In Heidelberg, Germany, in 1560s, they asked this very question. It's question number 50. It says, why is it added, referencing to the Apostles' Creed, and sitteth at the right hand of God? Why is it added? And the answer is because Christ is ascended into heaven for this end, for this reason, that he might appear as head of his church, by whom the Father governs all things, that Christ is the head of the church, that Christ is the governor of all things. That's why. So last week we learned of Jesus as priest. This week we'll come to know him as our king. In fact, Jesus, like I said, is the long-awaited priest king. Jesus fulfills this vision that David had, and yet he fulfills this vision in a way that that David could have never even imagined, never even hoped for. Jesus is the head of his church by whom the Father governs all things. Are you, are you beginning to catch this vision of what it means to actually sit down at someone's right hand? When Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, he found himself in the place of honor. He found himself in the seat of power. Jesus is Lord. And so let's explore those three things. Let's explore what it means for Jesus to sit down in the place of honor. What's your understanding of honor? It's not like a word that we use a whole lot. I mean, we might refer to a judge as your honor, or we might have a mate of honor or a matron of honor at our wedding. There are some cultures that rely heavily on honor and shame. The the best thing you could ever do for your family is to bring positive attention to your family. The worst thing you could ever do is to bring negative attention to your family. In fact, I think our popular culture is is going crazy right now with this issue of honor, with honor. Let me me give you an example. Uh, People are all over social media. We're surrounded by celebrity. I mean, everyone's vlogging or blogging or liking or following. Everyone is grabbing or at least trying to grab for attention, try to grab for accolade. It seems like no longer in our culture are we receiving honor, but we're trying to grab for it, trying to grab for other people's attention. There's a heavy emphasis in our culture on honor. And some would argue that it doesn't matter whether or not this is good or even bad attention, right? Bad press is better than no press, some might say. And when it comes to holding someone's attention, when it comes to sitting in that place of honor, 
I believe we have a sin problem. Listen to what Jesus has to say in the Gospel of Luke. Turn with me if you have your Bibles. Luke chapter 14, Luke 14, verses 8 through 10. Jesus is using the metaphor of a wedding banquet. And he says this, When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit down at the place of honor in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host. And the host who is invited both of you may come and say to you, give this person your place. And then in disgrace, you would start to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down at the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. After reading this, I kind of find this premise hard to imagine. I mean, could you imagine someone actually doing that? Going to your wedding, being at your wedding reception and actually sitting as if they were in the wedding party? I mean, when Rebecca and I got married, she had her matron of honor. She had her maid of honor. I had my best man. We had our wedding party. We had the wedding party's table up front and center closest to us. I can't fathom someone who attended our wedding going and saying, oh, you know what? That looks like a nice table. That seat looks like it's available. It's, wow, it's really close to the, to, to the bride and groom. This is great. I'll have great seats and it looks so beautiful. I think I'll sit here. Like that would never happen. So why would Jesus take the time to teach this lesson to his disciples? Why would Luke take the time to record this in scripture? I believe because it actually happens a lot more than we'd like to admit. You know, I was a part of a racial reconciliation committee a number of years ago. And on this committee, I learned some really valuable lessons about myself. See, I was invited to the table. And I learned that while I was around the table, that uh, the way in which I approached the table and the, the freedoms that I felt while at the table, not everyone around the table felt the same way. In fact, if you talk to women and people of color, they often don't feel the freedom to be able to bring their full selves to the table. You know, if they uh, want to express their opinion or if they want to push back against something or if they want to give a different solution, they're often seen as pushy or overly assertive or like, wow, you're just kind of ease up. You're being a little bit too much right now. But for me, if I bring myself to the table, I'm encouraged to sit up and, and, and speak out and bring my full self to that space. I have a very different, a very different reality than many when coming to a table. And it got me thinking, how many times, how many different scenarios in my life do I come to tables and do I vie for attention? Do I try to sit in the place of honor? Unfortunately, I find myself doing that far more often than I'd like to admit. And I think that this is an important thing for us to consider. Not only do we need to be concerned about the ways in which we might grab for honor. You know, we, we, we come to the table and whether it is a, the social media uh, a table or if it's a literal boardroom table, whether it's a, a dinner conversation or a phone conversation, where do you sit when you come to those tables? One thing that you might want to practice is, is you can ask more questions. You can say, tell me more, help me understand. Those are ways in which we can take the lowest place. 
Not only do we need to be aware of how we might be grabbing for honor and attention, but we need to be aware of how others are grabbing for our attention and the the seat of honor in our lives. What do I mean by that? Every moment of every day, someone is trying to grab for your attention. They're trying to enter into your living rooms, your sacred spaces, your time with your children. They're trying to get your attention. They're trying to find your favor. They want your accolade. There's been algorithms formed for this. Do you know that? They're using your clicks. They're using your searches. They're using your purchasing patterns just to grab your attention and hold it just for a little bit longer. We have to be mindful of who is grabbing for our attention, who is vying for that position of honor in our lives. Steve Rubel from Edelman, a global communications firm, says this, attention is the most important currency that anybody can give you. Wow. Attention is the most important currency that anybody can give you. It's worth more than money, possessions, or things. This is coming from a marketing agency, a global marketing agency. In fact, Tim Cook uh, supports this idea. The CEO of Apple has recently recorded saying this. He says, if a business is built on misleading users, on data exploitation, on choices that are really no choices at all, then it does not deserve our praise or does not deserve our honor. It deserves reform, he says. He says, we can no longer turn a blind eye to a theory of technology that says all engagement is good engagement. The longer, the better. And all with the goal of collecting as much data as possible. What Tim and Steve are talking about is attention. They're talking about our honor and who we give it to and for how long we give it. We have a social dilemma. We're allowing algorithms to determine for us who gets our attention and who receives our honor. Who is at the seat of honor in your life? What grabs your attention? What is vying for your time? Is it worthy? Is it worthy of your honor? As Christians, we need to be aware of how we might grab for attention how we might vie for that seat of honor. We also need to be aware of who is grabbing our attention, who is trying to sit in the seat of honor in our lives. And for many of us, we need to move some of those people, some of those networks, some of those apps to the back table. And we need to invite Jesus forward into the seat of honor in our life. When it comes to honor, we have a sin problem. To address the sin problem, we need to remember what Jesus says, which is to seek humility over honor. In fact, it's exactly what Jesus did. Even Jesus didn't assert himself into the position of honor. He was invited. Listen to this in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20 through 21, the apostle Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, and he says this. He says, God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Do you notice that God seated Jesus at his right hand? God 
God brought him forward. Jesus didn't seek the place of honor. Jesus didn't demand it. He was invited into it. He didn't grab for it. It was God who placed him there. Let's be Christians who follow Jesus in this way. Let's be Christians who choose humility over honor. And let's honor others who do the same. Right? The right hand of the majesty on high is not only a seat of honor, but it's a position of power. Let's explore that together. What's your relationship with power and authority? You know, if you've been following Pastor Drew's 40-day devotional, you know that he's been speaking on this idea of Jesus being our ruler. And he says that we have this mixed relationship with authority. But there's been so much abuse and misuse of power over the years that we can look at authority with suspicion, with a lack of trust. He also says, on the other hand, that so many of us are trying to get our own agendas across the line that we look at authority as someone or something that's in our way. We have this twisted, inverted, distorted understanding of authority, of power. In business, we see this all the time, right? We got our power suit on, right? Some of us, we know that we need to get that power tie. See if we can do this. Got to get our power tie on. Got to get that top button. Ooh. There we go. Got it. Power tie going. Yep. This is what we put on in the morning, our power suit and our power tie. Looking sharp. Looking confident. Feeling good. Feels powerful, doesn't it? You know, we put our power tie on, we put our power suit on, we think about what our next power play might be so we can go after that power grab. Now listen, if you're in business, I'm not trying to bag on you. I'm a business marketing major. I'm just saying in business, we hear a lot about power, right? There's a lot of ways in which we use that term. And a lot of it's self-focused. It's for our own agenda. We're trying to do a power grab In reality, we're not the only ones. This is not a unique thing in uh, human history. This has been going on for a really long time. And we have this unique relationship with power. I want you to hear uh, from Henry Nouwen in this quote that he says regarding power. What makes the temptation of power so seemingly irresistible? Maybe it is that power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. Maybe power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. It seems easier to be God than to love God. Wow. Easier for for us to control people than to love people. Easier for us to own life than to love life. That's powerful. For many, our relationship with with power is inverted, it's distorted, it's self-focused. Power becomes about us and how much we can acquire. It's this twisted relationship with power, like I said, that didn't originate with us. This is a common human problem. And unfortunately, it started with the very first set of, of human beings, the very first couple, Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter one, you learn of this. Their temptation is this, you can be like God. The adversary says, see that fruit? Doesn't look so good. Why don't you grab it? Why don't you consume it? Why don't you taste it? It was the very first power couple that ever went for a power grab. 
And they weren't the last one to do it. In fact, this is very common for Jesus' disciples as well. Jesus' disciples are um, recorded uh, in Mark chapter 10. We're going to go there. Mark chapter 10, we're going to spend a little bit of time in Mark 10. Mark 10, verses 35 through 41. We learn of these two disciples, James and John. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him, being Jesus, and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Verse 38, but Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Let's jump to verse 40. But to sit at my right hand, Jesus says, or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the 10 heard this, when their friends heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. James and John, can you believe these guys? Like, Talk about assertive. Talk about like, you can't really fault them for being, you know, I'm just going to go after it. I'm just going to lean in. I'm just going to ask. They're really bold. They're really direct. In fact, their names, the sons of Zebedee, mean sons of thunder. It's almost like powers in their middle name. And Jesus, he had just finished. He had just finished sharing his vision for the kingdom of heaven, his reign and rule. He had just completed that. And the first things that James and John do is they see it as an opportunity to go for a power grab. Mark 10, 35 says this, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Can you believe these guys? Like what kind of lead in is that? In what scenario can you imagine where you could approach someone and just go like, hey, I'm about to ask you something. I just want you to say yes. Like, would that ever work with your boss? Would that work with your landlord? Would that work with your roommate or with your spouse? Could you imagine me going to Rebecca and being like, honey, um, I just, I'm going to ask you something. I just want you to say yes. <laughs> She'd be like, um, no. And why don't you ask it? And then maybe. And P.S. If someone ever says maybe, uh, there's a good chance it means no. And also, if you ever have to like have a, a preemptive approval for something that you're asking for, there's a good chance that you also know you probably shouldn't be asking for it in the first place. And yet this is what James and John do. And look at what they're asking for. Look at what they're asking for. In Mark 10, 37, it says, And they said to him, Grant to us to sit at one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Have us sit at your right and your left. We want to sit in the seats of honor and of power. And notice, uh, when, I, when I hear that, I notice this, this, this desire to grab for those seats. And it, it reminds me of me as a kid. Um, I, I have a younger sister. She's two and a half years younger than I am. Her name's Melissa. And Melissa and I would go everywhere together. In fact, my mom would drive us everywhere. She was like this incredible taxi service. And and. We had this thing, like we, we always wanted the front seat. Uh, we would walk out of our house. We had this rule that as you walk out of the house, as soon as you hit the front porch, you could yell, shotgun. Have you ever used that before? But shotgun means uh, that you want the front seat. That's the shotgun seat. 
And so there was a rule, though. You couldn't call it until you got outside of the home. And so I would race my sister to the front door. I'd get out of the front door, and I would yell, shotgun. And she'd be like, that's not fair. You got it last time. I got the front seat. And I'm like, sorry, I called it. I called it. Why did we want shotgun? Because that was the seat of power. That was the seat of control. That's where you could control the radio. And I realize some of you right now are saying, what is a radio? And that's not the point. The point is that it was the seat of control. As a kid, I wanted to grab the seat of control. It's as if James and John are calling for the shotgun seats in the kingdom of God. And look at how their friends react when they learn of this. Mark 10, 41. And then the 10, when they heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. They began to be furious with these guys. Why? Because they wanted those seats as well. They're upset because they didn't think of it first. They didn't call for it first. They're like, you can't call dibs on those seats. Hey, that's not fair. Come on, guys, you had them last time. I mean, it sounds a lot like my sister and I calling for the front seats. See, what is true for Adam and Eve, what's true for James and John and the rest of the disciples is also true for us today. This power grab mentality is not a new problem. It's not a new issue. It's a sin problem and it's a common human issue. When it comes to power, we still have a sin problem. As Christians, as followers of Jesus, we still want to be Lord of our lives. We want to use our our own agency for our own ambitions. We want to use our authority to serve our self-interests. We want to use this, this power, and it's so often abused and used just to gain an edge over someone else. Simply put, we grab for power in order to be in control. This grabbing power in order to grab control is not just a problem that's out there by them, but a problem that's in here by us. And Jesus has something to say about this. He knows that we have this problem. So listen to what Jesus has to say to his disciples just following this. And I believe it's for all of us as well. In Mark 10, verse 42 through 45, so Jesus called them, all 12 of the disciples, James and John included, and said to them, you know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers, lord it over them. And their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus like, friends, you know how those godless rulers rule, don't you? They throw their weight around. They get a little bit of power and it goes straight to their heads. There are those who have this power tie and they have this power play and this power grab, grab mentality. And he says, but it is not so among you. This is not the way of a Christian. The way the world seeks and uses power is not the way of the kingdom of God. It is not the way of Christ. It is not the way of a Christian. This right hand is not only a seat of honor, it's not only a seat of power, but it's a position where Jesus sits as Lord. In the kingdom where Christ reigns, where Jesus is Lord, he flips the script. It's the upside down kingdom. 
We pursue humility over honor in this kingdom. We pursue people over power in God's reign and rule. The great ones, they don't grab for attention. They don't grab for power. The great ones in the kingdom of God where Christ is Lord, they use their power and their position to serve. You see all throughout this, you see this all throughout the New Testament. It's a biblical Jesus model for what it means for us to use power and authority. Jesus' teaching surrounding this is not vague. He is very clear. He demonstrates it. Without a doubt, this is the example that Jesus demonstrates. So the question is, if you believe this to be true, does your life reflect this belief? It's one thing for us to believe something, but Jesus calls us to far more than just believing in him. He calls us to follow him, to emulate him, to do as he did. As a Christian, we need to turn our power suit. We need to turn our power suit into a server's apron. We need to take our power tie off and and turn it into a busting towel. This is the image that Christ gives us. This is what it looks like to use our power and authority in the kingdom of God. It's a very different look. The Apostle Paul affirms this In Philippians 2, verses 3 through 5, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or a sense of superiority, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. The Apostle Paul is not talking about look to the the hobbies of other people. That's That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about the cares and concerns of others who are different than yourself, who are other than yourself. Paul's saying, don't have a sense of superiority. Don't go grabbing for your own ambitions or the things that matter to you most. Think about the needs of others. Consider the realities of other people. Yield honor to one who is different than you. Yield honor to one who is different than you. Spend yourself in taking care of your neighbor. Basically, life is not all about you. Life's not all about me. Life is not all about us. It's not like it's our world and people are just living in it. We need to use what we've been given to benefit someone else other than ourselves. After Paul says this, he points us back to Jesus and we always have to go back to Jesus. In Philippians 2 verses 5 through 11, the Apostle Paul says that, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited or something to be used for one's own advantage, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave or a servant Being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, I love that. 
God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under, under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul's word for us regarding honor and power, authority and agency is to have the same mind as Jesus. If Jesus is Lord of your life, then we need to think and act like it. You might be in the highest places of leadership. You might be sitting at the table of the board of directors. Don't serve yourself. Don't seek your own advantage. Don't serve your own interests. Take whatever position and power and authority that you have and spend it and use it and pour it out to serve the interests of others. Don't step away from your job. Don't step away from your position or your role, but rather use it. Use it to care and to serve your neighbor. We need to humble ourselves. We need to give fully of ourselves, even if it costs us. One way we can do a self-assessment is we can ask some simple questions. How am I using the honor and the power that I've been given? Am I using it for my own self-interest? Am I using it for the agenda of others who have the same interests that I do? Or... Am I using my power at the service of other people? Those who don't have the same interests as me, those whose needs are very different than my own. So we need to be both, both people inside and outside of the church have their very specific ideas on power and how it should be used and how it shouldn't be used. And every time when we talk about power or honor or authority, or rule. We need to go back to scripture. We need to go back to Jesus. Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the reflection of God, the exact imprint of God's very being. How Jesus uses his power, how he uses his position is exactly how God would do it. We want a biblical understanding of power? Look to Jesus. You want a biblical understanding of honor? Look to Jesus. We have to make Jesus both Savior and Lord. The truth is, whether we acknowledge it or not, whether we acknowledge him or not, Jesus is Lord. His reign and rule spans across the universe. It spans all space and time. It is universal. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's not up for debate. That's not what's in question. The question is, today for you, for me, for us is, will Jesus be Lord of your life? Will you let him? Church, choose humility over honor. Choose people over power. Jesus is Lord. Pray with me. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on us sinners. We thank you for your grace and your love. We thank you for the way in which you model a trustworthy way of engaging with power and authority that you alone are worthy of our honor, that you alone are trustworthy, that you hold power and you use it for the well-being of the world. We praise you, Jesus. We thank you. Holy Spirit, would you do a work in us would you give us the courage to follow Jesus 
And Father, would you fill us with your love so that as we walk from this place, as we lead, that we would lead from a place of first and foremost being loved by you. We pray these things for your glory, Jesus. Amen.